Amen. As, you, as you're seated, you can turn to Acts 29. Acts 29. Turn to Acts 29. You can turn to Acts 29, and you, and you won't find it there. First so, of all, keep, there is no Acts looking. 29. Yeah, yeah. Acts 13. <laughs> well, that's going to come up in the Wednesday meeting. Oh. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Uh, if I say the name Ethan Hunt, you know who that is, right? Ethan Hunt, how many people know who Ethan Hunt is? Ethan Hunt would be given a mission, and then he would be told, your mission, if you choose to accept it, and then he would decide whether he was going to take the mission or not. You know who I'm talking about? Everybody with me? Enough of you that I can keep going anyway? And, and Ethan always took the mission because it would be a very short movie if he said, nah, not this time. Ethan always took the mission, but Ethan was always given a choice. Your mission, should you, should you choose to accept it? And the difference between Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible, and the followers of Jesus Christ with the mission entrusted to us by God is that we don't get a choice. That as Christians, we have been commissioned by God, given a command to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So this is our mission, and we must uh, accept it. And this mission, by the way, is the exact same mission as that which Jesus gave the apostles 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. Uh, the movie is not over because the mission is not yet accomplished. And in our passage today, we, we come to this incredible new phase of the mission as entrusted to the church. The church in Antioch, compelled by the Holy Spirit, sets apart two men, Paul and Barnabas, for a mission that is going to begin on Barnabas's home island of Cyprus. And again, it's an exciting moment for the church because it represents a first very intentional foray into foreign mission work. And it would be easy for us to conclude here today, easy for many of us to conclude here today, that when I talk about that kind of work, this pastoral work, this pioneering missionary work, when I talk about that, it would be easy for us, for many to conclude that the mission is something for professional Christian workers to do. But what we see is that the mission of the church is the mission of each individual believer as well. And the question you're going to ask as we work through the passage here today, every single person needs to ask this question as we work through the scriptures is, what's my role going to be in fulfilling the mission that has been entrusted to us as Christians? So Acts 13 is where we are. I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses. You follow along in your Bible as I do. Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, 
He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, I love these uh, accounts that we have in the book of Acts. It fires me up. It gets me excited when I read about how the Lord is working in that day. And here we see the mission of the church, but we see that the mission of the church, here's what we're going after. The mission of the church is also my mission. Now, here's what that's going to look like, because we're going to see it's a very distinctive mission. It has a pattern to it that we need to follow, a pattern that the, that the uh, church in, in Antioch followed. The mission of the church is also my mission to, first of all, build up the believers. We have to start by building up the believers in the local church. And we'll make three observations here about a church that builds up believers and then sends those believers out on mission and you can note these uh, for yourself. We're going to put them up on the screen. But a church on mission is, first of all, a church that is centered on the word of God. And we've talked a lot about this in Acts already. But in verse 1, we saw uh, there, there was strong leadership in the church at Antioch. It was comprised of, look what these leaders do. They're, they're, they're preachers. They're prophets and teachers. Now, he uses, uses the word prophet here. And we need to understand that word because there's kind of two different emphases to this gift of prophecy that we see primarily in the New Testament. Obviously, there's prophets in the Old Testament as well. They follow the same pattern. But this gift of prophecy in the New Testament is, is both, in certain circumstances, it is a, a foretelling of the future, but it can also be simply a foretelling of truth. Foretelling of the future if you go back a couple of chapters, we saw Agabus. He was a prophet. He foretold the future about a famine that was going to come on the whole land. And so that's a foretelling of the future, that kind of prophecy. The vast majority of prophecy that we see in the scripture, however, is, is a simple foretelling of the truth of God's word. And so the gift of prophecy mentioned in the Bible can involve predictive prophecy like Agabus, but more often than not, and this is what John Paul Hill says, one of the commentators in this series. He says, prophecy is the speaking of an inspired word from God for, ed for the edification and direction of the community. And, and elsewhere in the New Testament, this kind of prophecy is called preaching. And so that's exactly what's happening right now. We have the inspired word of God, and you have a, 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 a man in front of you who's faithfully seeking to foretell the truth of God's word to you, and so this is, uh, in the right New Testament sense of this, this is a prophetic word, a, a, a foretelling of truth that we are all receiving together right now. So that's, that's what we see happening in, in Antioch. More often than not preaching, once in a while, a miraculous um, word that comes from God uh, to foretell the future. So that's the first characteristic. We have 
a church that has prophets and teachers in it, teaching the word of God, prophesying the word of God, telling people the truth centered on the word of God. Secondly, obviously we've already talked about it here, but it's the raising up of godly leaders. A church on mission raises up godly leaders. The five <clears throat> leaders mentioned here are a Barnabas and he's from Cyprus. He's already a prominent leader. We've already seen him in the book of Acts. He mentored Paul. He was sent with Paul to Jerusalem on a very specific mission. He, Barnabas has this reputation. In fact, his name is, is literally this, but he's the son of encouragement. He's an encourager. He's the kind of person you want to have as a friend because he's always just encouraging you and building you up. And that's Barnabas. And he's been a leader for some time in the church already. You have Simeon, who is called Niger. And Niger is the Latin word for black or dark. All of the commentators agree that this was a man from Africa. He was a leader in the church in Antioch. And uh, that's why he had that name, a Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Roman or Latin name, but he's from the area of North Africa called Libya. We can't really tell what racial group he would have been part of, but he was from that part of the world, from, uh, from Cyrene. Then we have Menaean, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, how many people are confused about all the Herods in the book of Acts, in the Bible? You're, there's so many Herods. So I, I made a historical chart for you because I know how much you love history. I know how much you love this. So I made this chart up this week so we could sort out the Herods. You got to know your Herods. In fact, that would have been a better title for this slide. Know your Herods. So Herod the Great, 37 to 4 BC, he's the Herod who's around when Jesus is born, he's the Herod who talks to the Magi, and he's the Herod who slaughters all the male babies in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. Great in terms of his architectural building and the way he built up that whole part of the world, but a terrible, terrible human being. And then after he passes off the scene, a guy named Archelaus, he takes over uh, from 4 BC to 86, so for about 10 years. And, and he's the one, he, we just read about him in the Gospels when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are heading back from Egypt because they've run away from Herod the Great, um, warned in a dream to do that. Anyways, they're coming back from, from Egypt and, and Herod the Great, son Archelaus is on the throne and they're like, yeah, we're not sticking around for that guy because he's probably just like his dad. So, so, so they, so they uh, go up to Nazareth in Galilee. Then um, in 86, Herod the Tetrarch, who we read about here, um, he's, he's the guy who is around for the execution of John the Baptist and the crucifixion of, of Jesus. It's that Herod. He lives till about 39 AD, AD 39. And then Herod Agrippa, this, the first, and you can see overlapping in times, and that's because not all of the territories were always exactly the same as to what they ruled over. Um, and, and so Herod Agrippa first, who we talked about last week, remember we had that cheery conversation about the worms eating him from the inside out and then him dying? Remember that? Do you want to go over that again, or should we just let that? Okay, we'll just let that pass. By the way, Herod the Great had the same affliction. He, he also was eaten by worms. Josephus records that. And so it was like a, a grandfather, grandson kind of thing. But he, he was the one responsible for Peter's escape from prison, or at least he was on the throne at the time. And then Herod Agrippa II, who we haven't seen yet, but we're going to see him at the end of the book of Acts, toward the end of the book of Acts. Not as far as Acts 29, but uh, just a little bit before Acts 29. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think Acts 25, um, Herod Agrippa II will show up. So anyways, in the, in, the passage, in the passage here, we have this Menaean. He's a lifelong friend of the middle guy there, Herod the Tetrarch, who was the king at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. Menaean knew him, was close to him, 
and, and, and thus is a person of some social standing in the culture of, of the day. And then you have Saul, of course, who was a former persecutor commissioned by the religious leaders to go out and persecute the Christians. And now, uh, as a result of a miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, is a, not only a follower of Christ, but an apostle and missionary and leader in the church. And these men have been raised up as, as leaders in the church. So we have a church that's committed to the word of God. It's raising up godly leaders. And then thirdly, it's a church that is committed to worship and prayer. Verse two, while they, speaking of the whole church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So there's this culture and this atmosphere in the church of, of devotion to the Lord, heartfelt passion for Jesus, seeking him together as the church, and that only happens, and, and, and it's so important for us to hear this because we, you know, we're talking about the church and we're speaking on in, in these community and corporate ways, but really to the extent that each of you as individual Christians are deciding that this is the kind of life you want to live and that a bunch of people who have that kind of devotion for Jesus get together and form the church, then the church has that. So it really is up to you to have this in yourself, this devotion, this commitment to worship and to prayer. It's you saying, I'm going to engage in these things. I'm going to make this the culture of my life personally. And, you know, our second pillar here at Harvest is unashamed adoration. Uh, we want to, every week, we want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in worship. And it seems like the church in Antioch, Antioch, well, let's just call it Antioch Bible Church. It seems like Antioch Bible Church was exactly the same. And, and because they had this devotional heart for the Lord, because they were raising up leaders, because the word was at the center of everything, they had the ability to send out workers as missionaries to proclaim the gospel and to plant new churches. And they did that because they were first building themselves up with all of these things. Such a church, if you're that kind of church, you're positioning yourself for awesome things to happen in you and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit, for God to do great things in the church and through the church. And if I could, if I could bring it down to one phrase, if, if you look at all of these, these, these characteristics, it really is this, it comes down to this, the church in Antioch was attentive to the Lord. They were just listening to the Lord and they were following his lead. They were attentive to the Lord. And if this is to be our mission together, then, then you and I also need to be attentive to the Lord and see this second, we need to listen for the Spirit's voice. As there being the church, as, as we saw it described here, all the individual Christians deciding to be that kind of believer and the church together being that kind of church, in the midst of that in Antioch, Verse two, partway through, it says, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now it is absolutely, it gives us no information whatsoever in how that word came to them. We're not sure how the Lord communicated to it. Were they in the midst of worship and one of those leaders received a word from God? Maybe, maybe Manaus received this word and went up in front of the church and said, you know what? I got a word from the Lord. We're supposed to send Saul and Barnabas out on this mission. Maybe it came that way. Maybe all five of them went home that night and all five of them had a dream and came back. You won't believe the dream I had. I don't know how the Lord delivered the word. Maybe an angel showed up in the midst of their elders meeting and, and delivered it. We don't know. The, the, the Lord doesn't tell us how it was communicated to them. 
But it happened in a way, here's what I'll say about it. It happened in a way that was indisputable. The word was delivered to them in such a fashion that every one of them went, you know what? That is a word from the Lord and we can confirm that. And one thing seems certain. You only hear the spirit speak if you're in tune with the spirit of God. If you have the path, the communication open between you and the spirit, you're inviting the spirit to actually say things and you're in a position to receive those things from the spirit. If your heart and mind are so aligned with God, then he's able to actually talk to you, communicate to you in this way and work through you. The primary way for us, God speaks, is through his written inspired word. It was something that the Antioch church did not have. They didn't have the word of God at this point. We're talking about it at this point in the story. We're talking about 45 or 40, 80, 45 or 46. A little more than than 10 years after the crucifixion of Christ. There is no written New Testament at this point. They have apostles who are delivering the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit working in very specific ways, but no printed or compiled New Testament at this point for the church in Antioch. And so they're listening for the Lord to speak to them. And again, we see God doing the clear work to bring something about, but we also see a church doing what it was supposed to be doing. And those two things together, this divine human cooperative is the manner in which God chooses to operate. And the message that came to them as they're prepared in heart and doing the right things and the spirit speaks to them, the message that came to them was this. It's our mission to send out more planters. I mean, having heard from the spirit, they respond with more fasting and prayer. So so understand, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, they're devoted to the Lord, they're demonstrating it in all of these ways, hearing the scriptures taught to them. God speaks to them, he gives them a call, and and they confirm it, and and then they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray and we're going to fast some more to really make sure we've got this right to make sure our way is fully committed to Jesus. And when they did that, verse three continues, they laid their hands on them, so they're commissioning them. They're not ordaining them to ministry. They'd already been involved in ministry for a long time. Paul's been in ministry for a long time by this point. Um, um, uh, Barnabas has been in ministry even longer than him. So this has been going on for quite a while. And so this isn't an ordaining to ministry. They're already involved in ministry. This is a commissioning to this specific work. So they laid their hands on them, verse three, and they sent them off. And one thing that needs to be noted about all of this, but it's not said in the passage, but it's a subtext for everything is that they they had to do this by faith. All of this had to be done by faith. They had to believe that God was in all of this. Now, it's no secret, our history, we were planted by a church in Chicago in 2001, long time ago. Cheryl and I went uh, to Chicago back in 2001. We did a residency there. In fact, the young lady that was singing in our worship team this morning, Riley, over here on this part of the stage, uh, Riley is from Harvest Chicago, visiting here, connected to our family through marriage. 
And, um, and I just remember, you know, you always had these big theological words and you want very simple definitions for these. And I remember the definition of faith being so impactful that I learned all the way back during that residency in Chicago. And this is this, is this definition. And, and we've used this all through the last 22 years. But faith is, look at this, faith is, there's four elements to understanding what faith is. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. So first of all, I need to believe what God says. I need to believe the word of God. I need to act on it. That's part of faith. I need to overcome any emotion that might keep me from acting on it. And then I have to trust God that, that though the path may be difficult, there's a good result at the end of it. That's faith. So these four elements. And that, that third element right there is what I want to focus on when I think about what it means to send out more planters. Because I can't miss the, the part that tells me that, that faith has to transcend my feelings. It has to overcome my emotions. And, and the way this plays out in terms of the mission is that if it were left to my feelings, I don't think I would ever plant a church. I don't think I would ever launch out to do something like that or that I would ever want to send somebody out to do that if it were based on my feelings. I want, I want you to imagine for a second this wonderful church in Antioch that obviously has some awesome things going for it. The prayer, the fasting, the worship, the, the centrality of the word of God. They have great leaders. Just think about those five leaders. They love getting together every week. They're getting together for their elder meetings and, and they're having wonderful times in prayer and sharing a meal together. And they love that time together. They love being together. And now the Holy Spirit says, you know what? I'm going to break up the gang. And two of you are going to go off to Cyprus. We don't know what's going to happen if they're, they're ever going to come back again. But we're breaking up the five. And the five are going, I don't think I want the five to be broken up. If I let my emotions get in the way, I'm never going on mission. Because I just like hanging out with my friends. I don't want anything to upset the thing that we're doing as a church. If we come right down to it, like as a local church, if we were to say like, what's the thing that we really want to do here? We just all want to hang out together and just have it always be the same. Let it be comfortable. Let it be a place of, of, of familiarity and, and security for all of us. But mission upsets the status quo. Mission moves us out of our comfort zones. Missions is costly from a financial standpoint. Missions is costly from a, from a people resource standpoint. And this is relevant for us. Now, first of all, let me just say, we've had a vision to plant churches in Simcoe County since 2011, and we haven't gotten around to it yet because of other things getting in the way. But, but um, we have a vision to do it. We started this series in the book of Acts several years ago, and then all of a sudden, this is kind of lining up for us because we're coming to this really pivotal, pivotal uh, chapter in the book of Acts. Chapter 13 is pivotal because we see this new mission enterprise starting and we're on the cusp. We just hired someone, Patrice, to come onto our team to plant a new church in Alliston. Okay, we want to be on mission to do this. We want to do the very thing that Acts 13 is telling us to do as Christians. And I want to tell you, I want to be realistic about what's going to happen here. It's going to affect what we're doing here. It's going to affect what this feels like on Sundays. 
But we have to say, you know what? This is my mission too. Every one of us. This is going to be our mission. To a greater or lesser degree, it's going to be our mission to plant this church in Alliston. Here's what's going to happen. Some of you are not going to be here anymore after we start that church because you're going to go there. And we're going to be like, ah, oh, I miss seeing them. Or they were in my small group. Or I was on a serving team with them and they're down there now. The people that go there are going to say, you know what? I miss Barry. I wish I was there. We have plastic stacking chairs. They're sitting on upholstered furniture in Barry. And you're going to think about that. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're not going to see people. They're going to move on. All of us are, all, all of us are going to give. We, you know, we've been setting money aside for the past several years. Money that I look at that now and I go like, we could, we could use that here. We could use that money. We could have the second floor finished. The things that we need to do upstairs. That could be done if we weren't planting a church in Alliston. We could retire more of our debt if we weren't planting a church in Alliston. We could afford things for here. You know what I'm saying? But now we're committed. We want another church in Alliston. We want more people to hear about Jesus. So we're going to set that money aside. All of us are going to give through our regular, regular offerings. Whatever you give in your regular offering, we're going to have to use some of that is going to get pushed toward Alliston in 2024. Some of you are going to make special offerings toward it. This plant is going to require time and coaching and prayer and fasting. And we can't let emotion inform our decision to do that unless, unless the emotions are joy and enthusiasm. Then bring it to the table. Because we're going to need lots of joy and lots of enthusiasm as we plant this church. So, verse 4 being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is exciting. We have a map. Did you know that I like maps? Have I told you that before? Apparently, I've told you that before. So here, here's our map. Antioch is our, is our starting point. We're just following through. I mean, obviously, Luke gave us this information for a reason. So we should be looking at it on a map. So they were sent out by the Holy Spirit from Antioch. They went down to... Seleucia, down on the coast, that's about 25 kilometers from Antioch to Seleucia, down to the coast. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. It was about a hundred kilometer uh, sail. And we know from uh, chapter 11, verse 19, the gospel work had already begun in Cyprus. There were believers there. Possibly there were even churches or at least groups of people. Verse five, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And that was initially the strategy they had because the Jews, the Jews at least had a framework. Jesus was their Messiah. The prophecies all came out of the Hebrew scriptures. So the, the natural first step was to go to synagogues and proclaim that the Messiah had come and try to see converts among the Jews. And they were also reaching out into Gentile communities as we'll see. So Luke notes too, in verse five, that they had John Mark there with them. John was with their to, to assist them. And I'm wondering like, what exactly did, did John do? Presumably he wasn't doing the preaching and teaching because he wasn't named among the five, but he was there to help. So I imagine he was, he was taking the connect forms and just kind of going through that and checking who was at worship that day. Or maybe he was setting up microphones or maybe he was helping with the baptism t-shirts and towels. Like he was helping with the mission. I thought that was all funnier than you guys did when I was writing it down, but that's fine. You know, can't recognize good humor, but it's okay. Eventually, verse six, 
Eventually, they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and if you kind of, it doesn't look like it kind of as the crow flies, but as they were working through the whole island, about a 160-kilometer journey to kind of hit all the towns and villages from one end of the island uh, to, uh, to uh, the other. And, and um, our own vision, our own vision, we could put up our own map of Simcoe County and, and of central Ontario because we have a vision and we have an idea of what we want to do here, and eventually at some point we'll do that. But our own vision is to see harvest planted all over this county as well as continuing to par partner with our Acts 29 network friends around, uh, around the world. And all, all the while, all the while we're doing this, our commitment is to keep the gospel at the center because it's so easy to get off track on this. We want to keep the gospel at the center. And, th and this is exactly the temptation that, that Paul and, and Barnabas faced, the, the challenge that they faced. Verse 6, when they got to Paphos, and now they're on the other side of the island, perhaps, you know, evangelizing all along the way. But Luke doesn't record any of that. He, he doesn't record any of the other stories, anything that happened in any of the other places that they went, any other converts that might have, uh, might have given their life to Christ. But when they got to Paphos, two key interactions stand out there, both captured by Luke. And this is what he uses to summarize this. First, they came across a certain magician. Magician, Greek word magus, um, uh, from that's the singular magus is singular magi is plural so these are astrologers magicians they're uh, fortune tellers the 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 positive side of this group as we saw the magi in in Matthew chapter 2 who went and saw Herod the great is they're also scientists and they're advisors to kings on on the other extreme you have um, some of these magicians who are just charlatans. We've already seen one of these guys earlier in the book of Acts. They're charlatans and, and swindlers. And uh, that's what this guy is. So they come a, a, upon a certain magician, a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar, Bar in the Hebrew is son of. So this is son of Jesus, very common name. Jesus is, is the Greek form of Joshua. So this guy's name is son of Joshua. Joshua and Jesus both mean uh, the one who saves, okay, or the Savior. So this is the son of the Savior, son of Joshua, son of Jesus. Bar, Bar Jesus is his name. So that's the, that's the one encounter they're going to have. And relatedly, and the reason why this encounter happens is because secondly, verse 7, uh, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, he's the Roman-appointed governor of that province. Cyprus was a province of the Roman Empire. And he's, he's the head of it. And he summoned... Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this leading citizen, this governor of this Roman province says, I want to hear the gospel. I want to get these two guys in here so I can, so I can interact with this. He, it, you know, and, and notice that it says, I skipped over it, but notice that it says that he was a man of intelligence. He's a man who wanted to have a good conversation about something he didn't quite understand. He wasn't afraid of other perspectives. I would like to pause at this moment and rant about our current culture. Are you okay with that? <laughs> because this whole idea of having a civil conversation with someone you disagree with has completely been lost in our culture today. The left-leaning culture around us is more intent on suppressing discussion and debate. Every difference of opinion is labeled as hate, or it triggers someone into being offended, and we have to keep our mouths shut. Universities have lost 
their ability to have rigorous debates and to hear different perspectives. Uh, Academic freedom is a joke today. Liberalism is crushing free speech and freedom of conscience and religion in favor of what is called groupthink, a concept first developed by George Orwell in 1984 and developed later. And it's good for us to know that. I am not calling, as you know, I am not calling for a holy war on the culture as a result of the way they are. Everybody good with that? No holy wars. I don't care about that. But it's good for us to know it because Paul and Barnabas are going into their context and they need to keep that culture in mind. And we're in our culture, in our context, and we need to keep that in mind as we keep our focus on the gospel and on the mission that God has given us to carry out. So we have to know our cultural context for our mission in the world. And I don't care to change the societal reality so much as I simply want to be aware of it so I can carry out the mission that God has given to us in this world to plant churches. So, rant over, okay? Just a little parenthesis there. Sergius, he's up for a discussion about Jesus. But he has this, this astrologer, magician guy who's his spiritual advisor, verse 8. But Elymas, Bar-Jesus, the magician, he's one of these charlatan con man swindler guys, but he's also a smart guy because he's worked his way up to the proconsul's office. And, and, and he's, he, he wants to steer Sergius away from them. Now, Romans, the reason why Sergius Paulus has this man as an advisor is because Romans are very superstitious people. I mean, people today are a little stitious, but Romans were superstitious. And, and, and so he opposed them. Bar-Jesus, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And we should never be surprised Never be surprised when the sharing of the gospel brings opposition. What we should be concerned about is when the sharing of the gospel brings no opposition. Then we should step back and say, am I really sharing the gospel if everybody's cool with it? Because it could be an indication that something is off. So Jesus said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end of the Beatitudes, he kind of expands the last Beatitude and he says this in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when, see how I emphasize the word? Blessed are you when, when what? People say all manner of evil against you, right? When they revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's when, not if. And Jesus made it clear that persecution of the messengers, persecution of the messengers and, and opposition to the message, that's SOP, that's standard operating procedure for the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, none of this, this opposition, bar Jesus kind of getting up in the grill of, of Paul and Barnabas, none of this is, is concerning to the mission team. They're not daunted by this at all, verse 9. But Saul, who is called Paul, and this is where the shift happens in Luke's writing, now the emphasis is going to be in Gentile areas of the world, Up till now, he's been known by his Hebrew name, Saul. Now he's going to be known by his Latin name, Paul. This is a literary shift in the book. But Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
You know, this is not really so much Paul's fight as it is God's fight. And he looked intently at Bar-Jesus, verse 10, and he calls him out. And he said, now remember, his name is Bar-Jesus, son of the Savior. That's his name, Bar-Jesus. But he calls him son of the devil, Bar-Diabolos. A little play on words. Paul's having a little fun with him. You think you're son of the Savior, and I'm telling you, you're son of the devil. You're Bar Diabolos. You enemy of all righteousness. Don't hold back, Paul. Full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And that's a phrase we see in other places in the scripture. And that's what Bar Jesus was doing. The straight path of the Lord is the gospel. No distractions, no deviations. And Bar-Jesus was trying to divert Sergius Paulus off of that, trying to make it crooked so that he wouldn't accept the message of the gospel. And Bar-Jesus is concerned by this. We, we don't read this, but you have to believe that Paul and Barnabas were getting converts all along the island as they got to Paphos, as they got to the place where they're talking to the proconsul. And Bar-Jesus is concerned that the proconsul himself is going to be converted. And Paul would write just a few years later, eight to 10 years later, Paul would write this to the Corinthians. And this helps us to see no distractions, no distortions with the gospel, a straight line, the straight path of the Lord. This is the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, that process. It's the gospel informing every aspect of our life. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, then he says it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we preach and so you believe. That's the gospel. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That's the straight line that God has established for us. And if our gospel fails to include the confession of personal sin and an understanding of the separation that has been created between us and God, a separation that, that exists now in real time, but also points toward the second death, eternal separation from God for all eternity. The curse of death is upon each one of us that points to the necessity of individual faith in Christ, belief in Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God over sin and his glorious resurrection from the tomb. If it's not all of that, if you don't believe that, what, I, what I've just summarized, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe in that, then you don't have the gospel and you're not saved. If you've heard anything other than that, it's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. It's the path has been made crooked. There are a ton of other things to believe in the Christian life. A lot of things that we're going to sort out along the way, but not these things. You cannot truly be saved apart from an understanding of these rudimentary aspects of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens, what happens next here is, is kind of unique. 
It's an authentication of the message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. It's for a special circumstance. It's a rare move by God to take someone out of the game entirely. And I want to say before we look at these verses that I wish I had the ability to do this. Paul says, verse 11, he says this to Bar-Jesus, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, can I confess, I, I wish I could do that. But, I, but I, instead of blindness, if I was negotiating this out with the Lord, instead of blindness, it would be muteness. But I wouldn't want to do it to just anybody. Like, I don't care. If someone doesn't believe in Jesus and, and, and they're just out there and, and they're, they're, they have a, a different idea about life and all of that, I don't care about that. What I care about are people who are calling themselves Christians. This is a Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus. So he's claiming some connection to Yahweh and to the word of God, but he's twisting and distorting the straight path of the Lord. So my concern, if I was given the gift of muting people, it would be reserved for preachers, men, who, men and women who call themselves preachers, but who are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling themselves Christians, but leading people down the path. Mute, 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 mute. I would be exercising my gift all day long. I would put in overtime. I would take no vacations. And I would be muting people everywhere. Now, meanwhile, the Lord has not sought to give me that gift probably for good cause. Meanwhile, Sergius is watching all of this go down. And he's convinced and he's converted. And we should have enough faith to watch for unexpected conversions because this man is the equivalent of the, the premier of a province. He's, he's the leader he's of, a, of a whole people in the Roman Empire. He's a man of some, some power and influence. And Luke says in, in verse 12, then the proconsul believed he was converted by faith in Jesus Christ. And it happened when he saw what had occurred. Now, he's certainly impacted by the miracle that, that, that got Bar-Jesus sidelined, but that sign merely pointed to the greater miracle, which is the miracle of salvation that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the greater miracle that happens here. Notice what really convinced him. He was astonished. See it in verse 12? He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The sign caught his attention, but the thing that really astonished him, and that word astonished means that he was overwhelmed by what he heard. He was astonished at the teaching. And there are a lot of Christians, I want to say, there are a lot of Christians who are caught up in the signs, not, really, not realizing that the signs point to something else. The signs point to a destination. It would be silly, for example. Several years ago, I actually made this trip, Cheryl and I made this trip. We, we flew from Toronto to Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix, Arizona. And we rented a car and we drove four hours north to the Grand Canyon. Anybody else ever made this trip before? Few people have been to the Grand Canyon. So, so imagine we drove four hours from Phoenix in our rental car and we saw the sign. 
And imagine we stop on the side of the road and we want to take a picture beside the sign because that's what you do. So you get beside that sign, you take the picture and you look at the picture and you go, what a great sign. You look at the sign, what a great sign. I love this sign. This Grand Canyon sign's amazing. You hop in the car and you drive south back to the airport and you get in the plane, you drive, fly back to Toronto. It was a great sign. You tell everybody and you show them the picture. Look at this sign. Well, of course not. Because the sign points to something else. It's far more important. And we went just a little further. And I had a lot more hair back then. (laughs) And we saw what the sign pointed to. And it was worth it. It was way better than the sign could ever be. And don't be impressed by signs. Be astonished at the word. Every miracle in the Bible points to the message that God wanted people to hear. And when that word is proclaimed, great things happen. Even surprising things, shocking things happen. Of all the places that they went and all the stories that could have been told on that trip through Cyprus, Luke highlights just this one, the conversion, one convert in all of Cyprus he tells us about. And it's the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. An unlikely convert. And one who would no doubt open the door to a greater ministry impact on that island. And that's the mission. That's the church's mission. That's my mission. And that's your mission. And the only thing you have to determine is what part you're going to play in it. But as we close this, because there's just so much we can take out of this message. But as we close this, I want us to focus for a few minutes on that unlikely convert. And on your way in today, you were given a a single white card, just a a business card-sized card with nothing on it. And in this moment, what I want to do as we close, and we're going to go into time, the Lord's table in just a few moments and and worship. But on that card, I I want you to, to write the name of a person in your life who, who you would characterize as the most unlikely to be converted person that you know. And just write their first name. You can put one or two people if you want. The most unlikely to be converted person you know. And if you need a pen, some ushers are in the aisles and they'll give you a pen. And, and if you want, you can text, you can text it. If, if you don't want to write it on a card, just text the first, just first names. We don't need all the names. Just text it to that number. And we're going to pray in just a moment. But here's what we're going to pray for as you're thinking about that name and writing it on the card. We're going to pray for a Sergius Paulist moment for each one of them where they believe where they're astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And we're going to pray against all bar Jesus opposition in their life that has them blind to the truth, that has them walking around in a mist and in the darkness. And we're going to pray together for an unexpected conversion for those names that you're putting on the card. We're going to pray for many, many unexpected conversions in the lives of people whose names you're writing down. And when you leave today, we're going to have you I'll just hand those cards to the ushers. We're going to have these names. We're going to take all of these names that you've given to us. We're going to add them to our weekly prayer list. We're going to send that out. And we're going to keep praying, believing prayers for unexpected converts to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Does that sound good? I want to believe that God is going to do something astonishing in our midst. So let me pray. Let's pray for that. And the team's going to come up and we're going to share in the Lord's table together. But Father, we want to lift up the names 
that are being written on these cards and texted in right now, God, believing that you do miracles in converting people. That Sergius coming to faith in Christ was a miracle. Who would have imagined that a high Roman official would make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life, not the Caesar? Father, I, I pray for those names that are being written down. And what's awesome to think about is that you know every one of these names. You know all the names that were written down in the previous service. You know all the names being texted in. You know these people better than we do. You know everything about them. And God, we would pray from our very limited perspective, knowing that these might be some of the, the people who are the furthest away from God, maybe who are the, have the hardest hearts toward the gospel. But God, you can save them. You can forgive their sins. You can draw them in by the Holy Spirit. Just as you did Sergius Paulus. And so God, we're asking you for that. And, and beyond that, we're asking that all the bar Jesus influence in their life, all the opposition, all the distortions of the gospel, all the distractions that they have, God, all of that would be pushed back by your Holy Spirit so that they would see the truth and respond to it. And Father, these things we pray out of faith, believing you for a great thing. In Jesus' name, amen.